But it's an indication that prayer matters. Prayer works. Persevering is important. And it isn't something that comes naturally to us, uh, certainly not to me. Uh, a couple of months ago, I, I read a book um, that talked about a Scottish minister who began praying for people who were ill week in, week out. And there was one particular lady in his church who suffered from severe arthritis. And every week she would take the long journey to his office and meet him for prayer. And she'd pray for her and then she'd go away again on the bus. Uh, And she'd come back the week later and she'd receive prayer again. And within weeks her condition was improved. Within months it was even better. And before the year was out she was healed. So excited was she about this that she made it her thing to, to keep bringing others to this minister to pray for them as well. And this, this Scottish minister said that actually he learned the power of persevering prayer, that whenever people in his congregation would, were sick, he would commit to praying for them every week. And he said that he saw almost all conditions go within weeks or months, or certainly within years of persistent, persevering prayer. And when I read that story, I was very encouraged. So uh, my good friend Colin, uh, as he shared last week, has had some health problems of late. And so I phoned him up and said, Colin, this is really inspiring. I'm going to come to your house and we're going to pray together every week that you'd be completely healed of these conditions. Is that okay? And he said, yeah, yeah, let's do that. So week one, I turned up at his house and prayed for him. And sense of God's presence was, was kind of tangible and exciting. He wasn't healed, but he said, doesn't matter, I'll be back next week. Week two came around, I came to his house house and um, prayed again great sense of God's presence again wasn't healed doesn't matter we'll be back next week uh, third week came around I almost forgot week three but I didn't we turned up at his house and and prayed and it was great week four came around and I forgot so I'd sent him a text I'm so sorry I forgot and he said don't worry let's do it next week okay week five I completely forgot week six I completely forgot we're now week 13 I haven't been back and, um, and so I'm really sorry Colin I haven't actually said this to you yet so I thought I'd wait until I'm here to confess publicly and ask your forgiveness in the hope that you know because we're public you won't shame me um, that's an example of how my desire is to pray persistently with perseverance but what my desire is and what I actually do often falls far short. Uh, I don't know if you can relate to that. Uh, my suspicion is that all of us find prayer quite difficult and we can all be quite restless and lacking in perseverance because by nature we are restless. We're people that um, uh, perseverance doesn't come naturally to us. We're a faddish people. We love fads and crazes and new fashions. When I was 15 at school, the, fa- the craze of the fashion was to bleach your hair blonde. So this is me at school, age 15. Uh, there we go. With my school tie. I almost got suspended from school because of that, that craze, that haircut. Um, but you laugh, but I know you're the same. In fact, I've done some digging, and on your Facebook photos, I've found pictures of some of you that I'm going to show now. Just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. But here's, here's a list of some fads from the 60s to the present day. Um, at some point. It's died again. That's annoying. Just, just to save you from the embarrassment of all of these things that you've gone through. Yeah, okay, here we go. There we go. There we go. Um, Tamagotchis, afros, the Rachel haircut. Remember when people got them all the time? The Macarena. Remember doing that in school discos and nightclubs and thinking, this is really cool. Everyone loves this. Crocs, flash mobs, Heelys uh, in the early millennium, Heelys, Gangnam Style recently, Angry Birds, selfies. That's the one I just can't understand, taking selfies. And prayer. Is prayer a fad? (laughs) Maybe. Sometimes it can feel like these are fads that we go through. Uh, And we find it difficult to stick at things because our nature is to move on to the next thing. But also, there's so many distractions in in our lives that we're restless because of them. 
I came across something recently that I felt described my prayer life. This is symptoms of a common condition. Uh, Number one, are you easily distracted by irrelevant stimuli? And I get down to prayer and, Father, I'm wanting to pray for the day and all that's going on. Why is there a flashing light over there? What? Anyway, Father, thank you that you love me. Thank you that you... I turned that off yesterday. Why is that flashing? Anyway, Father, that sums up my prayer life so much. Or number two, uh, do you often impulsively abandon one task in favor of another? God, I want to pray for my family to meet you to get, I just want to send an email quick. And, and Okay, God, I want to pray that you'd, uh, yeah, you'd rescue them. And I wonder what I need to, and you just, and you go and, uh, I, was, I was praying, wasn't I? Or I wake up in the morning like, oh, amen. That was a good prayer. I finished what I started the night before. Or number three, um, do you often uh, have a tendency to act without regard to consequences, often at the expense of personal safety? I don't know about that one. That doesn't really describe my prayer life. It's probably just as well because those three things is a description of someone with ADHD. Um, which, if I'm honest, I feel like I have ADHD when it comes to prayer, attention deficit, hyperactive disorder. I'm just, I try to pray, but there's so many shiny things around. And what Jesus says is this. Will not God give justice to his elect, his people, the ones he's chosen and pulled out of the world, to those who cry to him day and night? Day and night. Are you serious? That sounds like a lot of praying. That sounds like a lot of hard work. Maybe Jesus didn't mean day and night. But in the New Testament, there are other verses that talk about the importance of praying at all times with all kinds of prayers. Or Paul writes to a church in Thessalonica and says, pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. But I've got to take the kids to school. I've got to send that in. What do you mean by praying without ceasing? So we, we, we find it hard to pray because of our nature and because of distractions. But learning to pray persistently over a long period of time is powerful and it matters. A friend of mine was telling me recently that um, uh, a few months ago he was invited to uh, visit a man in hospital who was sick. Um, he, he, he wasn't a Christian, but he spoke to his carer and asked her to find a Christian. My friend was a pastor, and so that seemed to fit the bill. And uh, went along and spoke to him in the hospital and just talked to him about faith, asked him how he was feeling, and, uh, and just went through some stories from the Bible, talked to him about the thief on the cross who became a Christian on his deathbed, if you like, and, and was with God and is with God now. Talked to him about that story, and this man, his name is Aubrey, he committed his life to God and, uh, and prayed a prayer, and they celebrated together. A few weeks later, my friend got another phone call uh, to say that this man, Aubrey, had died a few weeks after coming out of hospital. He was quite an elderly gentleman. And uh, they asked my friend if they're going to take the funeral for them. So he did, went along, took the funeral, and was able to share at the funeral that Aubrey had become a Christian in the last few weeks of his life. And it really impacted him, giving him a confidence that when he dies, he was going to go be with God and would be part of the new creation. And, and he told this story and preached the gospel. And afterwards, a lady named Betty came up to him. And she was in floods of tears. And she kept kissing him and hugging him and saying, thank you, thank you so much, thank you so much. He asked her what was going on. And she said that Aubrey used to be her next door neighbor. And 40 years ago, uh, her and her husband and Aubrey and his wife, would meet, they were quite good friends, lived next to each other. And often she would share the gospel with him and try to talk to him about faith. And every time he would kind of just close the door and say, no thanks, I don't want to talk about that. He was an avowed atheist, quite angry about it. And they since parted company. But this lady, Betty, had prayed, she said, for 40 years that this man would become a Christian. She said, I had no idea that he'd become a Christian until you shared that during that address. And she was so encouraged. There is power 
in persevering prayer over the long haul. But I think if we're honest, the, the main reason that many of us find it difficult to pray with persistence and perseverance is, is actually more because of this, because of difficulties, because of life's disappointments and hardships. We experience disappointment. Prayer doesn't work like we think it should. The genie doesn't answer all of our wishes. Even, if, even though we use the right formulae and pray the right system of prayers and go to all the meetings and do all the fasting, and, and yet still it seems God says no when we ask. And because of repeated occasions like that, we find ourselves going, um, this clearly doesn't work, or if it does work, I'm not doing it right. And because of difficulties, we can find persistent prayer difficult. came across this letter uh, written by a lady called Joanne. It was published in a book uh, I came across, and she said this, If you'd have asked me as a young Christian whether I believed in prayer, I would have quickly said yes. I would have told you about the time I spun out in the snow and didn't get hurt, or the time I dropped a house key somewhere in my car and couldn't find it for hours until I prayed. Maybe God takes care of new believers, I don't know. He doesn't seem to take care of old timers, though. I could list probably a hundred prayers that haven't been answered. I'm not speaking of selfish prayers, but important prayers. God, keep my kids safe. Keep them away from the wrong crowd. All three ended up in trouble with the law, abusing drugs and alcohol. I've got to say, Jesus' story of the persistent widow who keeps pestering the judge sours. Thousands of people pray for a Christian leader who has cancer and he dies. What did Jesus mean by that parable? That we keep beating our heads against the wall? She goes on to say, I've been living at the edge of the abyss for several years now. I went to my mentor and I poured out my soul, describing in detail all I've been through in the past few years with my health and especially with my kids. What do I do? I asked. He sat there for the longest time and said, I don't know, Joanne. He sighed. I waited for words of wisdom. None came. That's how it is with prayer too. There's a gap so often between what we hope for, what we pray for, and what we experience in real life. There's a gap of difference. And all of us, I'm sure, can relate to that story. I prayed for my husband to get saved or my wife to enjoy this or for a new job and it didn't happen I prayed for this person because I I thought I was going to marry them and I didn't or I prayed for my friendship circles that God would help me and and give me strength and he didn't or I, I prayed that I'd pass this exam and I didn't or I prayed I'd get that job or any job but I didn't and I prayed my dad would become a Christian and he didn't and and all of us, I'm sure, would have a catalogue of things that we think I've prayed for and it hasn't happened. And so what I want to do really for the rest of this morning is just look at that question. How do we deal with unanswered prayer? Uh, how do we learn to persist in the face of unanswered prayer and when there is confusion? See, when difficulty comes, when these questions arise, there's a few things that happen. Um, the first is this. Um, you might be able to see this. As I said, there's, a, there's, a, there's two lines, if you like. There's what we hope for, and then there's what we experience, reality. Uh, and over time, the gap between them gets bigger, and, uh, and we find ourselves living often in, in between, in, in the desert. 
But there are different ways that people respond to that gap and deal with it. The first uh, is this, that people will respond with denial. I've prayed for this, therefore I'm going to live as though this is how it's happening. You know, my, I've got a broken leg, I'm going to pray for my leg and it's healed. I'm going to believe that it's healed even though I can't walk on it. I'm going to believe that it's healed or I'm going to trust that God has answered this prayer even though it doesn't look like he has and we live in denial. We try to live on the hope line but really we just live in unreality. Or maybe you're more like this. We, we realize that there's a distance between what we hope for and what really happens. And so we get determined. And no amount of money, no amount of energy, no amount of time will stop us from getting to that hope line of what we want. I will do whatever it takes to get healed of this or to get that fixed, to get that resolved. I'll pray, yes, but really I will do whatever it takes. It's determination. But often those first two don't really help us over the long haul. And what tends to happen is that all of us find ourselves at one time or another erring or veering into this category, the despair camp, where we just stop hoping. We, we live in reality. We call it realism, but really we've just given up on hope and we're despairing. What do you do with that gap between hope and reality? How do you respond to that? In the bit that we read, it seems that Jesus' answer would be, you pray, you keep praying. In Luke 11, just a few chapters before this one, he told a similar story about the importance of persisting in prayer. He says you need to ask and go on asking, knocking and going on knocking, seeking and and going on seeking. You need to resolve to keep hold of God. Resolve to keep hold, maybe. But if you're anything like me, I find that it's when I get to points like this that cynicism begins to set in. I want to talk about cynicism for a little bit. Cynicism is this... This kind of quiet distrust, distrust of God, distrust of leaders or distrust of friends. Um, We don't ever say that we don't trust or we don't believe, but within our hearts we harbor this, ah yes, but but there's another angle, isn't there? Ah yes, but there's something you're, you're not telling me, isn't there? And eventually what happens when we live as cynical for so long, we end up wearing this badge, skeptical, and it becomes a badge that we wear with pride, Uh, It's a badge that says, oh, I'm skeptical. And we like it to mean I'm a thinking person. I'm not going to be taken in by unreality. I'm a thinking person. But actually, this badge of skepticism stands in stark contrast to what Jesus says we're supposed to be childlike. You can't be childlike and skeptical at the same time. But what we're wanting to communicate is, I'm an expert. I used to hope, I used to pray a lot, but things didn't happen. So now I'm an expert and we don't do that anymore. Cynicism begins in the Bible story right back in the Garden of Eden. Um, when God creates, creates the earth, uh, creates man and woman in this garden, and, and he says to them, you remember the story, um, there's a tree with some fruit, you don't eat that one. You can do whatever you like, but you don't eat that. And the story goes that uh, Satan, in the form of a serpent, came to Eve and said, you know, why don't you eat that fruit? She says, we can't eat it because God says if we eat it, we'll surely die. So the devil says, you won't surely die. And then he says this, God knows that if you eat of that fruit, you'll be like him. And he doesn't want that. He doesn't want that kind of liberation for you. What he's doing is he's, he's kind of feeding in this seed of doubt and distrust. You can't trust God. There's another angle on God. Let me tell you what it is. Cynicism comes to us with this guise of, I'm the real expert. Let me tell you about it. I've experienced this. Before I moved to this church, my former church, it got to the stage where the church leader there had done nothing wrong. And he'd never given me any reason to not trust him. But it came to the point where every time he said something, I would sit there and think, 
don't believe you, don't trust you. I'd never say that. Of course I wouldn't. But when he started exhorting the church and saying, come on church, let's do this, or come on church, we should pray like this, I'd sit there and go, yeah, no. Inwardly, no, I'm not going to do that. Fine, yeah, I'll watch you get excited about it. I'll be a passenger, I'll smile. I won't tell you that I'm not following you. I've just, in my heart, I've emotionally, I've mentally, I've checked out. I was cynical towards him. Didn't trust anything he'd said. Uh, and Paul Miller, in the, um, the book that we're recommending, he says, if we don't get passionate with God in the face of disappointment, then cynicism slips in and our hearts begin to harden. We begin a living death. Cynicism creates a numbness towards life. We, we stop. Um, the cynic is always observing, critiquing, but never engaged, never loving, never hoping. We become observers, cynics, skeptics of everything. Um, Amy and I... Uh, um, have two small children and so we watch a lot of kids tv and films at the moment and there's this this film despicable me um where the main character grew uh he's a villain but he's a nice villain because we're postmodern. that's how our villains are uh he's a nice villain uh but he he has a, a, an odd relationship with his mother and uh and this is a 30 second clip from that film we're going to look at now I show that clip because I think it's amusing. But that sound effect, that noise that she makes, that's what cynicism produces at the end of the line. And Amy and I have this thing that whenever um, one of us shows less than optimistic enthusiasm for something that we really should, we just make that noise and go, eh, doesn't matter. Eh. And so she'll say to me, oh, well, isn't it amazing how God answered our prayer? And I go, yeah, yeah, it's good. And so she'll look at me and go, eh. <laughs> as if to say, that's a cynical response. Why would you think that? I'm going, oh, yeah, it, would, it would have happened whether I prayed about it or not. Eh. It's like that, it's that response. And that noise puts, puts some words into action. The, the feeling of cynicism, what it does. Eh, I'm an observer. Eh, I'm not impressed. So what? We become like eternal French. Eh, that doesn't matter. I don't know. In everything we do. That was uh, French, not Scottish. And so the question that I want to ask is this, what do we do then? How do we stop cynicism from killing us? How do we learn to persevere and be childlike and pray and live with our hope line and our reality line and live in the desert? And I think the answer um, lies in this one small word. Uh, it's this word story. Jesus says in Luke 8, 8 Luke 18, 8, that we read, at the end of the section, I already kind of slipped it in there. None of us really noticed it as we read it, but this is what he says at the end. I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? His point is, one day I'm coming back. I'm going to judge the living and the dead. We're going to wrap everything up. We're going to make a new creation. When I come, will I find faith on the earth? What he's saying is, there's a bigger story here. There's a bigger narrative. The Lion King has lied to you. It is not all a circle of life where we live, we uh, exist, we get old, we die, and then the next generation takes over. That is a lie. History is going somewhere. There is a meta-narrative, a bigger story that we are 
a part of. And knowing that changes the way we pray. Knowing that changes the way we engage with difficulty and disappointments. Because what it means is that all of our individual skirmishes and struggles with justice and suffering and all of our wise and unanswered questions, it means that none of them are wasted. It means that nothing that happens to us, whether good or bad or awful, is wasted in the kingdom of God. That God will and can and does use everything because there's a story There's a purpose to life. God is weaving a narrative, not just in the grand scheme of history, but also in your life individually. You're not an island just existing and occasionally bumping shoulders with a friend and and experiencing something and having emotional highs and lows. You're not. You're part of a story and you have a shepherd who's leading you and who's writing a story for you. Paul, one of the early church leaders uh, who was against Christianity, tried to stamp it out and then got knocked off his horse by Jesus, literally, and went on to plant lots of churches. He wrote to a church in Rome and he wrote these, these words that have now become famous that many of you will know. Even if you're not a regular churchgoer, you might know these words or someone might have quoted these words to you when things have been difficult. He says this, We know that in all things, in all things, in everything that takes place, whether the mundane or the exciting, whether the seemingly very significant or the inconsequential, in all things, God works. God is working. God is active. God is involved. But what's more, God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. God's working for your good. This doesn't feel good. No, it doesn't mean that everything that happens is good, but it means that God will turn it and work it and use it for good. Joseph, when he was sold into slavery by his brothers and sent to Egypt and lived in prison for several years, that wasn't good. But at the end of his life, he could say, well, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. When Moses killed a man and fled into the desert and lived there for 40 years as a sheep herder, that wasn't good, but God used it for good. When David ran from Saul and was living in the desert in a cave and constantly in fear of his life, even though he had been promised he was going to be king, that wasn't good, but God used it for good. You know, seeing your life as a story and as part of God's story changes things. It changes the way you engage with the things that distract you. It changes the way you engage with the things that are difficult or disappointing or heart-wrenching. You see, without story... Our experiences produce fruit in our lives. And without story and without being led by a shepherd who loves us, we can end up becoming these things. Angry, aimless, cynical, hopeless, thankless, just blaming things. But when you see that there's a story you're part of, it changes the way you can engage with things. You become waiting. You become watching or wondering, hoping, thankful or repenting. Because there's a story. And there's one thing I want to talk about in terms of God's stories and God's dealings with our lives. You see, cynicism would want you to stop the story dead and just say, I'm just going to become an observer, an expert, a critic, but never childlikely engaged. But story means that we can engage. And so I want us to look at this. How does God use deserts? Uh, We looked at this graph earlier on there's a hope line there's a reality line and in between is the desert and at various points in our lives we'll feel like we're in the thick of the desert 
Other times in our lives, we'll feel like we're in an oasis. But all of us know what it is to live in times like that. God, in the Bible, takes everyone that he loves through deserts. He, he took Joseph through one. It was a literal desert. He took Moses through one, a literal desert. Jesus spent 40 days and 40 nights in a desert preparing himself. God uses deserts for his good. It's his way of curing our wandering, restless hearts. That image that Polly shared earlier about this falcon constantly flying around and getting into all kinds of things, but coming back to land on the zookeeper's arm. God uses deserts to bring us back. God uses deserts to cure that uh, wanderingness and restlessness in our hearts. In the desert, let me read some of the things that happened, see if you can relate to this. Many of you have been following Jesus a lot longer than I have, and you'll see the, the fruit of a desert in your life. But in the desert, this happens. The first thing that happens is that we slowly give up the fight. Our wills are broken by the reality of our circumstances. The things that brought us life gradually die, and our idols die for lack of food. In the desert, things get stripped back. The things that we used to prioritize above God now take their rightful place. They die because there's nothing to feed them and give them life. The still dry air of the desert brings the sense of helplessness that is so crucial to the spirit of prayer. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago. You come face to face with your inability to live, to have joy and to do anything of lasting worth. Suffering burns away the false selves created by cynicism or pride or lust. You stop caring what people think of you because I'm in a desert. There's no one to see my makeup or look at my clothes or be impressed with this or impressed with that. I'm just struggling to survive. You stop caring what people think about you. See, the desert is God's best hope for the creation of an authentic you, a real you that hasn't got mask after mask. Desert life changes us. You don't notice it at first, but after a while you realize I'm different. I've changed. Things that used to be important to me don't matter so much anymore. I don't get angry at the same small things that I used to. And what happens is that God finally starts to get your attention because you realize he's the only game left in town. What happens is you cry out to God so long and so often that a channel begins to open up between you and him, that when driving you find yourself turning off the radio just to engage with your father, or or at night you you find yourself drifting in and out of of prayer when you're sleeping, you're waking up, oh God, I want to pray for this. And what happens is that without realizing it, you've learned to pray continuously. God becomes your life source. Paul Miller again, he says this, God wants to do something bigger with your life and simply answer your prayers. The act of praying draws God into your life and you begin to change. The prayer begins to change. See, getting to grips with the concept of story ensures that we stay on the path. The path that cynicism would look to derail us from. I don't know if you've seen The the Hobbit or read the books, but at one point they have to travel through this very thick wood uh, that's very dark and dingy. and, And before they enter it, Gandalf and their guide, I can't remember his name, but he tells them, stay on the path. If you deviate from this path into the woods, you'll get lost. You'll never find the path again. Story ensures that you stay on that path, that you don't start looking, you don't start giving in to despair or living in unreality or being gripped by disappointment. 
Because it's in the desert that God so often, he creates a wonder. He sets a bush on fire that doesn't burn up and he commissions a man. Or he, he, he prepares a man for, for great responsibility. He softens his arrogance so that Joseph could one day lead a, a nation or Moses could one day lead a people. It's in, a, in the desert that God parted the sea and rescued his people. He creates wonders in the deserts where no one else and nothing else will do. God shows, I'm sovereign, I'm king, and I can use this for my good. And you know what? Persevering through deserts, it always rewards You're not at the end of your story. At the moment, you might feel like I'm in the throes of difficulty and heartache, but the story's not over. Don't stop the story. The tragic story that came out in 2005 when um, Liverpool were in the Champions League final against AC Milan. And at halftime, they were 3-0 down. And Liverpool fans were just distraught, thinking we've wanted to get this trophy for so long and it's all over. We're 3-0 down at halftime, hopeless. And actually, at halftime, one man hung himself and committed suicide. It's tragic. It was it hit the news a couple of days later. But in the second half, Liverpool got their act together. They pulled it back to three all and they won the match on penalties, 3-2. It became Champions League final. If you'd have stopped the story at half-time like that, tragically like that man did, it would have been over. Your life is a story. It's not over yet. There's plenty more that God is going to do through you. Uh, some friends of ours, Stephen Kaz, uh, lead the church in Crawley, and they were talking about something that happened recently that I found very encouraging. Uh, they have three children. One of them, their youngest, Jude, is autistic. And growing up through mainstream education, found it very difficult, found it very hard to engage in that kind of educational system. He just, his autism couldn't cope with it. And they, kind of, they, they wanted to get him and have been trying to get him into a, a specialist school in Lewis. Uh, but the West Sussex Council have said, no way, it's not going to happen. It costs too much money. It's just not possible. We're going to have to do what we can here. But they thought, no, we need to move him. This isn't good for him. So they prayed about it, and they felt God say, yes, you know, you can, we're going to go for this. I want you to go ahead. I want you to appeal against what the council have said, and we'll get him into this special school. And along the way, they had to make some difficult decisions that they had to really trust God by faith that he was going to do something. So uh, Steve tells me that on one night, he was on the phone to a uh, governing body, and they said, look, if you're going to appeal this trial, we need to do it now. But if you're going to do it, we need £2,000 from you. And he thought on the phone, I haven't got £2,000. But he said, yes, I'm going to do it. I believe God's spoken. Put the phone down, thought, I still haven't got £2,000. His wife came home and he told her, he said, we owe £2,000 for us to appeal this thing. We haven't got it. They prayed, asked God to provide. Two days later, uh, they had a cheque arrive in the post for £2,000. So it was amazing. They opened the, the cheque, saw the name, phoned their friends and said, what on earth? Why did you send us this? They said, well, two days ago, we were praying and we felt God tell us to give you this money. And they kind of discussed times and they realized it was almost exactly the time that Stephen Kaz were praying. So along the way, they were appealing and hearing encouragements like this. And it came to the time of the, uh, the court hearing. And uh, it looked all very negative. Everyone was telling them, you're not going to win. You've just wasted all this money. You're not going to win. Uh, but they prayed. And the judge turned to Stephen and said, do you want to say any last remarks before we conclude? And so he took 10 minutes and preached the sermon of his life to convince people that they should do this. And that was it. They went away from the courthouse, didn't hear anything. Six weeks later, they got a letter from West Sussex County Council saying it is with immediate effect that we think your son Jude should be transferred to the specialist school in Lewis and they're going to pay for taxis to get him there to and from school every day. He said that was only a couple of months ago but the difference it's made in Jude's life has been amazing. They said before that 
what would happen was that during lunch times, Jude would be sat in the cafeteria in the corner with his lunchbox on the radiator with his hands over his ears and his eyes because it was just too traumatic for him. Now he comes home from school talking about the friends that he's made at school and who he plays with at lunchtime because they persevered, because they trusted God, because they knew that God was writing a story and that story wasn't finished yet. Persevering prayer is powerful. Imagine what God could do in your life if you took him at his word and knuckled down and trusted him over the long haul, didn't give in to cynicism and despair, didn't live in unreality, but instead managed to live in the desert where you're facing reality daily. This is hard, this is painful, but I'm praying in hope because I know God can and I'm believing that he's using this time for my good. Imagine what your life would look like. It would mean you wouldn't waste anything that came your way. You'd learn to trust again. You'd learn to see God's hand at work in everything. You'd learn to see what he's up to and how, what he's teaching you. Can you imagine how our church would change if we were full of Christians who got hold of this? Uh, you know, and I make a commitment to Colin that I'm going to pray and see it through. Can you imagine how many more stories of God at work we'd have? Uh, a friend of mine who leads a church in Bedford tells a story of... Um, a guy in his church who got hold of this. And uh, it was a friend of his or somebody new in the church who had severe back pain. And he said, I, I believe God will hear my prayer if I persist. So he went over to speak to this guy, pray for his back, and nothing happened. A week later, the guy came back, saw him again, pray for his back, nothing happened. Three weeks, four weeks, praying for him every week, nothing happened. On one week, uh, my friend uh, the guy was in, said the guy was in the church and um, couldn't see this other guy. He wasn't there. So he thought, oh, I don't know. But he felt within his spirit that something was wrong, that he was here. And so he went out to look for the guy. He said, I need to pray for his back. We do this every week. And he came out into the car park and fi- found the man doubled over in pain by his car. Couldn't move because his, his back had seized up. He was in so much pain. And so he prayed for him there and then. And God healed him there and then. And he's been walking without back pain ever since. I hear stories like that. And I think of friends I know who are in severe pain because of back pain. And I think, oh God, do that here. Imagine how our church could transform if we got hold of this. At the moment, we have our our prayer meetings once a month. And we don't get loads of people to these prayer meetings. I'd love it if we could. I'd love it if you just saw that as a date in your diary and said, I know life's busy, but I'm going to get to that prayer event. I believe God's putting on us the urgency and the need to pray. It's really important that you, that me, that we get hold of this two weeks ago I read the quote that D.L. Moody a famous evangelist said he said uh, God uh, whenever God moves in a mighty or powerful way it can always be traced back to a kneeling figure and John Wesley the great revivalist in the UK said God does nothing except in response to prayer come on church Let's learn to pray together. Let's learn to persist in prayer together. Let's learn to not get cynical. Imagine how your workplace could be changed if you got hold of this. That rather than getting bitter and uh, griping against the boss or gossiping against other employees, rather than getting annoyed at the reality of how difficult things are, you prayed and you trusted and you waited and you hoped. You thought, I wonder what God's going to do. I wonder what God's going to do. Imagine a family, how that could be changed. Where, again, you know, when, when trouble hits in your home, you think, come on, kids, let's pray. I know this is hard, but let's pray. Let's get hold of God. He's a good dad, and he, he promises to provide. Oh, but he hasn't done for so many years. I know. We're going to work through that, but he will provide. Life is painful, son. The Bible promises that we're going to suffer and struggle, but we know we can trust God. We know that he'll work a wonder in, in the desert of our experience. 
See, often unanswered prayer can create in us a feeling that we've been abandoned by God. He's not listening. Or if he is listening, he doesn't care. The Bible tells the opposite. It says that Jesus was rejected on the cross on our behalf so that we could never, we'd never need to be rejected again. He experienced on himself all of the penalty for sin so that we could experience all the benefits all the time of sonship. Now at times we don't know what God's doing. The sun is hidden behind the cloud, but we, we know the sun's still there, still giving out warmth, still, uh, God is still loving us. In 1 John 3 it says, See what kind of love the Father has lavished on us that we would be called children of God, for so we are. God loves you like a father loves children. And he promises to be with you, to never leave you, to never forsake you, to never abandon you. And Jesus says, if you feel like a widow who needs justice, who needs help, keep praying. Because if an unrighteous judge will answer those kind of prayers, how much more will a loving father do the same? Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you're a dad who loves us. Thank you that you're a God who gives us good things. And I pray, God, for us as a people that that in the desert we wouldn't give up. We wouldn't embrace cynicism or skepticism as a badge to wear, but we'd learn to trust you like children. Help us to do that, God. Lord, I pray for my friends and my brothers and sisters in this church, many of whom I know, God, are, are really struggling There's a lot of pain, a lot of hurt, a lot of unanswered questions. Pray for them, Father, that you'd give them the answers they need, or if not that, you'd give them the hope that they need to keep going, to keep on keeping on, to resolve to keep hold of you, God, to trust you, I pray. Lord, that you'd soften us as a people, you'd make us more like Jesus, you'd make us more like children before a Father, loving him, trusting him, and giving ourselves to him in everything that we do. Amen.